Hey, YA is sponsored by Book Riot's roster of rad newsletters. Did you know Book Riot has over 25 newsletters covering every genre, as well as book news and deals? Sign up for book deals to get notified about the best book sales of the day, handpicked by our editorial staff. There's Today in Books, our daily newsletter, summing up the most interesting headlines from the book world every day. And don't miss our newest newsletter, Our Queerest Shelves, which will deliver LGBTQ plus news and recommendations straight to your inbox. We've also got newsletters for horror fans, romance readers, YA lovers, mystery and thriller aficionados, and more. Just go to bookriot.com slash newsletters to sign up for the newsletters that are most interesting to you. That is bookriot.com slash newsletters. Welcome to Hey YA, from great new books to favorite classic reads, from news stories to the latest in on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a book riot podcast hosted by me, Kelly Jensen, alongside Sarah Hannah Gomez, and we are recording on Thursday, February 25th, 2021. Hello. Hi. I Wow, it's the end of February. I know. <laughs> like- I sat down to, speaking of newsletters, write the newsletter for Monday, and I was like, oh, it's March 1st on Monday. Like, when did that happen? Yeah, yeah. And it means, like, it will be the end of Black History. It will be past Black History Month when people listen to this, but we are we are celebrating Black people still today and every day. Yeah, and, and not just history. We're specifically going to talk about, well, yeah, we're going to talk about Black History a little bit and then also Black Futures, which I think is a thing that doesn't get talked about during Black History Month quite enough, and certainly not during other months of the year when it should be talked about. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if we could be late on Valentine's Day (laughs) for our romance, why not also be behind on this one? Well, I think about that a lot, actually, like when it comes to these month-long, you know, celebrations, like they're very worthwhile and important, but too often all those discussions are relegated to that month. And a lot of times it's like right at the beginning of that month. So by the time you get to the 25th, it's like, well, everybody's kind of forgotten that we're doing this thing this month where it should be a thing you do every day, you know, like all the time. So I think sometimes being late is good because it's a reminder, like there's no timeline on this kind of stuff. Yeah, very true. I am not the biggest fan of heritage months. I I get it, you know, like, I know why they're there, but also they bother me for those reasons. I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) but anyway, how are you? (laughs) I am doing okay. I haven't um, been doing a whole lot of reading, which is interesting. Like, I was reading multiple books a week for a long time. And then the last couple of weeks, like, I can't get myself to read a page at all. Like, all I want to do is lay down and play on TikTok. So I have been. um, And I've been really enjoying it. But I think just everything in the world and everything in my personal life has hit that point where it's like, I don't have the concentration beyond a 60 second video anymore, which is fine. You know, like it's, it's one of those things that comes and goes and you remind yourself like, sure, I'm not reading everything I feel like I should be reading. But if I were pushing myself to do that, it'd be disingenuous to reading and disingenuous to the book. And also just I wouldn't enjoy it. So what about you? Yeah, I've been reading a lot, but I do. Yeah, I often have that feeling of like, I'm not doing a book the right service, you know, if I read it when I don't want to. And then, 
you know, you have that feeling when you're like, you know, reviewing a book later on Goodreads or something that you're like, I was so not feeling it, but I don't know how much of it was like, I was not feeling anything that day and Mm -hmm. how much was like, this book is mediocre. So I have been reading a lot, actually. And I've been feeling, you know, like, I've been enjoying reading. I've also been using reading as a way to avoid other grad school things. (laughs) But also, I'm feeling better about like, dissertation stuff too and i'm enjoying research reading like you know one nice thing about grad school versus undergrad is once you're on your dissertation you like only have to read stuff that you're interested in Mm -hmm. so you know like if something ends up dense or whatever at least you're like but the topic is so cool so yeah and i i should say have been reading it just hasn't been books you know i've been going through a lot of like articles that i've saved and catching up on that kind of stuff which it's just a valid just as valid a type of reading but doesn't necessarily get categorized kind of in the same way as sitting down with, you know, a book. Yes. I feel that way anytime, you know, people are like kids these days don't read and I'm like we read all day. Mm-hmm. All day. Yep. All day. You just don't respect all kinds of reading. <laughs> exactly. And I think too like kids who are remote learning all day and like reading a screen all day it's like how could you expect them to read anymore they've literally been reading all day in some capacity and it's like they're gonna be fine you know oh yeah this is the last two semesters i have i mean i always try to assign like some films and some you know ted talks and stuff to let people use their brains in different ways but i have been real heavy on the the ted and the youtube and the the canopy and just i'm like I don't want to make you guys read mm-hmm. all the time. You know, and I like TED Talks are nice because I'm like, you can listen, you can watch or read the transcript. I don't care. It's the content. So, yeah, you know, whatever works for your brain. If you want to listen while you go outside and take a walk, whatever. But yeah, I'm like, we there's only so much staring at paragraphs that we can do these days. Like, it's it's not fair. And we're all ebooked out. Usually I loan books to students from our collection. And, you know, we're not able to do as much of that because we're trying to keep people from coming to campus. So yeah, I'm really I'm like, I would normally assign you guys more like professional and scholarly readings, but we're going to do those via YouTube or, you know, podcasts, because <laughs> it's not fair. And there's, there's a lot of literacy value in that as well. You know, I think too often we get caught in this idea that it's reading that is the most important thing and reading is very important, but so is being able to watch a TED Talk and pull stuff from it. So is being able to watch a film and pull stuff from it. And I think too often we get caught in this idea that the only good way to learn is through reading when there are so many other types and styles of learning that benefit from you know, sometimes close the book and watch a watch a movie or a YouTube video and, you know, get something from that as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely agree. Aural litis- literacy is hard. I mean, you just finished your time on the Audis. I was on an audiobook committee once. I did an extra credit episode on it. Like, it is a whole skill and it's not easy. Mm-mm. So it's like learning to read graphic novels. Like, people are like, oh, they're so easy. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're so hard. Yep. I still like I read graphic novels. And even if I enjoy it, I'm like, I am working harder than I would necessarily with prose. Like it's, it's a different skill. Visual literacy is like its own thing. Visual rhetoric is its own language. Yep. 100% agree. Let's, uh, 
Let's hit our first sponsor and dive in because our first topic is a very like chatty topic. So that's I, true. <laughs> I think we're going to have so much to talk about here. Um, so our first sponsor is Penguin Teen. From the number one best-selling author Melissa De La Cruz comes the heart-pounding follow-up to The Queen's Assassin, perfect for fans of Lee Bardugo and Holly Black. Lilac's birthright makes her the queen of Renovia, and a forced marriage made her the queen of Montress. But being a ruler does not mean making the rules. For Lilac, taking the throne means giving up the opportunity to be with the love of her life, the king's assassin, Kaladin Holt. In this riveting conclusion to Melissa de la Cruz's fantasy duet, love and magic are at war, and victory rests on a knife's edge. Thank you to Penguin Team for sponsoring the show. So do you want to introduce this topic and sort of what inspired it? Because you brought it up like a month ago at this point, and it's something that I have been thinking about nonstop since then, in part because book bans and access to material, print material especially, are things that I'm so passionate about. And this sort of took that passionate topic to a much bigger level and I think really ties into a lot of stuff that we talk about on the podcast, whether or not we frame it in this particular way. Right. And I think it's good to sometimes frame it that way and sometimes not and Mm -hmm. to talk about it in both ways. But so, yeah, this topic interested me because it is evergreen. Um, It's not a holiday. It's always, always happening. Um, But when we have communities or parents or um, school districts either preemptively allowing um, students slash their parents, because that's really what it is, to like opt out of a particular book or unit or kind of backtracking after someone complains. Um, so Utah's really killing it this month. Uh, <laughs> there was the first news article that really was a big deal in early February was about a school that allowed parents to opt their kid out of an entire Black History Month unit, which is impressive um, and totally not a dog whistle for anything. But then also in Utah, <laughs> there was a child who asked a teacher to you know read a book that they had read at home and wanted to read it for story time, which is awesome, like children bringing in a book for story time. And it happened to be about a transgender boy. So someone heard and flipped the F out. But we see this all the time. I mean, that's why Banned Books Week exists, and we can talk about that terminology sometime. But it was interesting, I think, that it was an entire unit, that it wasn't, you know, you'll see parents be like, my precious little baby can't handle this one novel, or, you know, sex ed is a big one that, you know, often people want to opt out of. But this was really, really fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, this particular one had nothing to do with the book that was read aloud, but rather turned into this bigger issue of the school district this fall had started doing like diversity book bundles and schools that opted into this would get these bundles for their library so that anybody could check out these books. These are all diverse books, primarily books by and about people of color. And those became the things that were then pulled from shelves, not the book that was read aloud, um, but rather these other books. And in a lot of ways, you're reading this going, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why was this the thing that ended up causing such an uproar? And I believe it's the principal of that school was saying, you know, 
They want to put the books back on the shelf, but they're reviewing them to make sure that they're up to standards. And it's like, you literally just put them on the shelf this fall. Like the program just started this fall. (laughs) So again, something super fishy going on there. Yeah, it's, I wish I were surprised, but I'm not, but you know, always angry. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I think it's important we talk about this because I think it ties into a bigger discussion about traumatic content and what it is when it's appropriate to limit that, particularly for teenagers. Where do you provide content warnings? Where do you provide parents an opportunity to opt out? Because let's be real, a lot of times it's the parents, not the kids. And um, in what cases is it just racism or misogyny? Right. Yeah, because I one of the things I was thinking of was um, Beloved by Toni Morrison is, you know, like a fairly commonly chosen text in high school classes and thereby also like a fairly commonly pushed against text. And like there mm-hmm. are some violent things and like very traumatic events, you know, that are in the book. But um, I'd have to look up. This was a few years ago. But there was one case I remember where it was, you know, a white mother of a white son who was a senior, I think, so like 17 or 18, who said, you know, like, he can't handle it. And, you know, one of the biggest violent scenes in the book has to do with like two young white men and what they do to a black woman. So... I was kind of like, hmm, I wonder if it's because she doesn't want him to feel called out. Like, it might also be the Mm, literal, mm -hmm. you know, like, very physical violence. But, hmm, maybe it's, I don't want my son to view himself as an aggressor, which, like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think if we we taught boys more, maybe, you know. Anyway, but, yeah, I think – You know, then I was like, but how much traumatic content, like, do students of color just have to sit there with, you know, the classics while everyone, like, you know, debates whether Huck Finn, you know, whether the the N-word should, you know, be there or not, like. Right. And that's such a, that's such a great example, because what a dumb discussion when there are, like, real big issues to discuss, and It got me thinking, so a little bit about this particular school district that was allowing students to opt out of Black History Month. They have, so it's a Montessori school, and there are 322 students in it. I can't remember the number of Black students. I want to say that it was like three or four. And then 70% of the students are white, which made me pause for a second and go, what about all the other students? What? is their background. We don't get any of that. And I think that that's important to think about too in terms of why are we shielding this small number of of white kids? I shouldn't say small number. 70% is pretty significant. But like, why are we allowing them to opt out of learning our, meaning the U.S. history, which is not this whitewashed, sanitized history? When you think about kids of color, black kids, Kids of color from other groups that have been historically harmed in the U.S., so think Japanese Americans and internment camps, children from parents who had to make these incredible sacrifices to come to the U.S., quote-unquote, illegally and have been targeted since. You think about Native kids. Why is it white kids get to opt out of learning the realities when these are 
the traumas and the stories and the histories that their literal neighbor has has lived and there's no reason they should be shielded from it but rather should be educated about it so that one they're a good neighbor like that's the easiest answer but two like so that they don't repeat it so that they take responsibility for what it is to be a white person in this country. Yeah. And it made me wonder, um, yeah, for the other, you know, more or less 30% of people like, oh, do they have, you know, do they have any sort of curriculum for, you know, Asian Pacific Heritage Month and Hispanic mm-hmm. Heritage? Like, you, it makes you wonder how much about it is black in general, like, or not even in general, black mm-hmm. particularly, and how much is anything that is not, you know, quote unquote, neutral, which means white by the law of default. White. Yeah. And I I can't stop thinking about that. And I can't stop thinking about just what, you know, I want to say what a disservice it is, but I, we have a responsibility to teach accurate history. And something I've, I found fascinating in light of all this is there are three states right now. Iowa's one of them. I want to say one of the Dakotas, North or South, I can't remember which, and there's another state, currently have bills going through their government to, like, sanitize the way history is taught. And that's all because of the 1619 Project that apparently has, like, these lawmakers up in arms about teaching, like, America's true, not beautiful, you know, city upon a hill history. And why? Why are we doing this? The whole idea that it's traumatic content, like, is such a, an easy way to take away responsibility for what history really is. Right. Yeah, it's... Oh, I was thinking, too, you know, me being from Tucson, um, and Tucson has, you know, like an mm-hmm. award-winning ethnic studies program, or I should say had, because, you know, in 2011 or so, there was, you know, a big... I don't want to say news event because that kind of trivializes it. But we had, you know, state bills introduced and they were all, you know, basically in favor of getting rid of this award-winning program. The, you know, kind of racist lawmakers even hired an independent organization to audit the program, hoping that that would, you know, bring legitimacy to it. And the the people who audited it were like, this is amazing. All schools all over the country should do this. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But of course, they still got rid of it. And it's like in pieces now. And it's, it, you know, it, it killed a bunch of careers. I mean, I, you know, my dad was a teacher at the school that was kind of the center of all of it. Um, one of the teachers at the center of it is a good family friend and was a teacher of my sister and brother in law. So like, it felt very close. And I had just started library school at that time. So it was also like, Everyone's like, how come you're in this program about like intellectual freedom and you're from this place? And I was like, you don't understand. It's because Tucson is better than the rest of the state. And that's why they are ruining us. But yeah, so it's like they don't want ethnic studies classes, but they also don't want, you know, ethnic histories in mainstream. And hmm, I wonder what the reasons for that could be. Mm-hmm. And if you pause to look at and and this goes broadly for issues related to pulling books or book challenges in schools, is it's not the kids who are starting this. It's the parents. It's the adults who feel like they have this obligation to protect 
their students. And again, more times than not, it is a white parent who complains. And in these cases, it was white parents who, you know, just don't want their precious children to be exposed to trauma when the fact of the matter is the kids need to be exposed to it. And educators are trained and continue to attend training to teach these things in ways that are appropriate, accessible, and and truthful, we hope, so that it's age appropriate too. Because the thing is, so this school, I didn't catch like how many grades it is, but what you're going to learn in first grade about black history is going to be different than what you learn in eighth grade. And yet those things can build on each other as a student matures and grows and like gets better context for all this stuff. And to just allow students to opt out is to say, you know, they're not going to learn it in an appropriate way. And also, let's just not learn it at all and pretend it didn't happen. Right. It assumes like teachers are incompetent and don't know like <laughs> child development. <laughs> and right. the whole idea of age appropriateness bothers me because, mm-hmm. you know, like st- when you're from a certain group, whether that's an ethnic group or a religious group or whatever, like you learn about a a trauma or a series of traumas or whatever at a young age because like you literally cannot function in your community without that knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'll meet people who are like, yeah, I learned about the Holocaust in ninth grade. And I'm like, what? Like when I was seven, I got a Holocaust memoir from a scholastic book fair and it was a scholastic book fair. So it was four kids. And it was, I mean, like, it straight up was like, you know, then they grabbed my baby sister and my mother and sent them to the left and I never saw them again. And Like, it did not shield me. And I meet other people who didn't learn that until later. And I'm like, how dare you? Like, I don't know. I just, yeah, like, how dare your teachers? And usually it's not the teachers, it's the administrators, like, you know, imposing this on the teachers. But yeah, just I'm like, how did you get away with not knowing this for so long? Like, it's, I don't know a Jewish kid in America who can't name like most of the camps by the time they're in middle school, like just because we've read so much about them. And we've met people who were in them. And, you know, like, it's just wild to me that people don't learn about this stuff until later. And I think that's, I think some of it is parents, yeah, who, who think that their kid is too young to learn about a trauma. And don't take into account that other kids are too old not to learn about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something that I remember happening. Like when I did a book event with Mickey Kendall for my feminism anthology, and we were at a, a very um, predominantly black high school to talk about the book. There was one point I couldn't answer a question that a student had because as a white person, one, I didn't have the context, and two, my growing up, while I was exposed to anything and everything, like there was no off limits for me, like I simply didn't come from this community where these discussions were happening from the time a child could talk. And Mickey was so great at stepping in and being able to be that person who's like, look, I know what you grew up with. You know, I know the lessons that you've had to learn that, you know, somebody who's not from your community has the privilege of not learning from a young age. And it was one of those moments where it's like, I can know the thing, I can read about the thing, but as a person who is white, I'll never experience what it was like growing up as a person of color and learning all these things that, you know, maybe I learned in a textbook, but not because like I lived in that community and that's not my personal history or family history. And instead, like that was a huge moment of pausing and being like, wow, 
we really do learn things differently and and need to. Like we need to have that exposure so that we have to sit with that discomfort and sit with that like I didn't know that. I want to be better by shutting up and listening rather than continuing to think I'm an expert because I'm certainly not and I never will be. Right. Like learning that stuff is life or death information, you know, when mm-hmm. you're in the group. And when I think about, you know, because I, I went to public schools through seventh grade. Um, so they were they were quite diverse. I went to magnet schools in particular and then went to a private school from eighth grade until I graduated. And just thinking about like I came out of that school, like a not understanding like how hostile and racist it was because you just kind of let stuff slide off. And I didn't because it wasn't a school where we learned a lot about, you know, anything that wasn't kind of your typical white curriculum. I didn't have the language to even like describe what was happening Mm -hmm. to me and what I was feeling. And I came out and I was like, oh, my God, like I've been not that like everyone treated me well. I had good friends and stuff. But I came out thinking like, I am not prepared to be black in the general world because I didn't learn enough about it at my white school. I mean, I remember going to the mall with a friend and my mom was like, you can't take that backpack. And I was like, well, but and she was like, no, no, no. And my mom's white. Like, and she was like, you cannot have a backpack. You need, here is a small purse. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> like, and not like, I just was not prepared. Partly, I think, you know, my mom and my sister, if they listen to this later, they're going to be like, no, also, you just like had your head in the clouds or in a book all the time and didn't (laughs) pay attention. But yeah, I remember the backpack thing in particular, just being like, oh, like I too often like forgot that I wasn't like everyone else, though at the same time, like was experiencing all this hostile racism. It's a very weird, like double consciousness thing. It it really is, and it really highlights why having this, like, opt-out policy is such an issue. Like, you don't get to opt out of being who you are. You don't get to opt out of your skin color. You don't get to opt out of your Jewish experience, your Jewish heritage. Why does a white kid get to opt out of learning about the traumas that you have experienced throughout your life, whether it's been, you know, one-on-one or it's generational trauma. Like why do we continue to allow them the privilege? And Utah, this was the point I was going to bring up. Utah, and this comes in one of the articles I'll link to in the show notes, apparently has one of the um, most parental-friendly educational policies. So like if a parent doesn't like something, they can pretty much like not have their kid learn it. And for a state that, you know, this is not state versus state as we've learned and I think we are very clear about like every state's policies are messed up in some way but this is such a a state that is very very white having power over that educational system and again creating parents as sort of the gatekeepers to knowledge and keeping so many young people from learning like the true history of America yeah it's it's unfair um And then on the other hand, because I think it's funny, like I came up with this topic before all of this news and then was like, oh, but then also with all of this news, like we can fit it in a different way. But thinking about like trigger and content warnings, because I know like you Mm -hmm. and I are both like people who believe that those can often be like, you know, sanity saving. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I was thinking about 
First, I was thinking about when I assigned um, Ashley Hope Perez's Out of Darkness to a class because I was like super obsessed with that book that year and thought it was brilliant and amazing. And my students were like shell shocked. And I realized, you know, and a lot of them were like, I loved this book, but whew, first book in the semester, like I was not ready. And I was like, it hadn't even occurred to me because I was just like along for the whole ride. Like that is that book is a lot to start a semester with, especially when like you're like, this semester is going to be so much fun. And I'm like the teacher who's like, you know, sitting on the table with her shoes off <laughs> so to be like, hey, guys, <laughs> and then to hand them this book. I was like, I did not set this book up like I did not set this book up in the right environment. And then since then, I've been very careful to be like, OK, this week, like. Make sure that, like, you have an appointment with your therapist or you have your mom, like, on speed dial or your friend, you know, whatever. Because mm -hmm. I remembered in grad school one semester that my teacher was like, you will need each other this semester. Like, I am 100% serious. You all need to plan to, like, go out for dinner after class. You need to plan to have chocolate or wine or whatever at your houses. Like, you cannot be alone in this class. And she was right. Like, we all... We would the class was three hours long and we'd all go out for like three hour dinners after just to like process like the heavy stuff we were reading. And I really appreciated that she did that. So I think, you know, like the same people who don't want to, you know, teach black history, like there's a the Venn diagram is almost a circle of the people who like don't like ethnic studies, but also don't think trigger warnings are good, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's weird how that works. But yeah, I think those people who don't like when we give trigger warnings for things like sexual violence, racial violence, gender-based violence. And it's like, this is actually like, there are a lot of students I have found in my five years of college teaching are more into the books with that traumatic content and more willing to engage with it and more appreciative that I assigned it when I give that context ahead of time. And I had some who were like, I can't be in class for this, but I will come and talk to you personally to make up for class because this book hit me so hard. And I was like, this is – she was like, thank you for assigning this. I just also couldn't be in, you know, a class for it. And I was like, that's cool. That's great. Like, I mean, it's not great, but, you know. And I think what trigger warnings do is they really give the power back to the reader to, you know, when you think about having, opting out of a curriculum, okay, that is somebody making a decision on behalf of everybody. Whereas when there's a trigger warning, it's you giving the reader a heads up like, hey, there's some tough stuff in here. You do what you need to do to prepare for it. Or, you know, in the cases that you can't engage with it in a classroom setting, like let's arrange some way to either have this conversation privately or come up with an alternate assignment that would fulfill, you know, whatever the the purpose is. And I think that that really empowers people to want to engage and it empowers them to think more broadly in terms of that traumatic content itself. Like why do we need to note like this book is going to discuss rape or sexual assault? Well, because there are survivors of rape and sexual assault in any classroom. And acknowledging that is acknowledging the very human aspects of what a book brings, like the whole purpose of reading. So 
yeah, it's just it's fascinating to me to to do this all or nothing approach versus a putting the power into the hands of the person who will be impacted by by what's being read, you know, and and this ties back into exactly what you had brought up earlier. When you are a person of color, you don't get to opt out of your history. Why is it that white people can opt out of learning that history? Like, why do they get to bypass the trauma without pausing to think about why that trauma exists? Yeah, ever since I started doing that, I mean, I have had not a semester has gone by that I haven't had at least one student like disclose trauma to me. And I'm really I'm honored that they would do that. And I'm proud that I've like made myself a teacher who they feel safe doing that with. But yeah, I think Mm -hmm. a smart student and a good reader and just someone who, you know, like a a sign of like a a bright person who is, you know, dedicated to lifelong learning, whatever, is that they are like, thank you for this trigger warning. Now I can, you know, plan to read shorter bouts maybe instead of like sitting there for three hours and reading the whole book. But once you've set up an environment, so like don't do this the first book of the semester (laughs) the way I did, but I had those weeks that I've done those like really heavy books have been the most both rigorous and like kind of raucous, like really great weeks in class. Like once the students have personally prepared to read it and like kind of collectively gotten to know each other, they have such amazing conversations and get so much good work done because they've kind of all like agreed without maybe like verbalizing it. Like we know this is heavy. We're going to like, you know, respect boundaries, whatever, but they're like, excited to deal with heavy stuff and it doesn't feel like this gross like oh let me the way we kind of feel gross when we watch law and order svu and you know when you're like i'm a terrible person for watching this but like i think when you set up the environment that it's like you know no one is expected to give more than they're comfortable giving whatever these are topics that students know are out there and they really appreciate a chance to like read and unpack something that, you know, allows it to be not like, let me give you my personal story because that's for your therapist. But to have this mm-hmm. like common, you know, like kind of fake person as like a case study where they can be like, huh, like this is how they're feeling. Da, 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 da. So those have been some of the best weeks in in my classes. And yeah, I feel like very privileged and honored that students are willing to do that with me. So and my students are not always teenagers. They are often teenagers or just out of teens, you know, because they're college aged for the most part. But yeah, I, and a lot of them say, you know, I wish we had had more of this stuff in high school because it would have been like a positive experience to be able to work some of this out. So, yeah, I mean, we could talk about this for another 40 minutes, <laughs> <Definitely>. but <laughs> I definitely want to get to our next topic. So If anyone's listening and is like, you have some thoughts or some insights or some stories, like you can always email us at heyya at bookriot.com and let us know. But I hope that that kind of offers a lot of food for thought because I know it certainly did for me. Yeah. So yeah, I'll hit our second sponsor and then we can get to a more (laughs) upbeat topic. (laughs) So our second sponsor is Oni Lion Forge Publishing Group. You've come to love Agritsuko. Now get to know her friends in this hardcover collection of the fan favorite miniseries Agritsuko. Meet her friends. 
This fun and fanciful book puts the spotlight on Protein, Finico, and Mr. Ton in three standalone stories. Features stories from Kat Ferris, Ariel Jovellanos, James Asmus, Lisa Dubois, DG Daguna, and Megan Wong. This is a must-have for fans of the hit Netflix show. Find it in stores everywhere this March. So thank you to Oni Lion Forge Publishing Group. So let's talk about Black Futures in terms of thinking about stories about Black teenagers like doing red stuff in the future. And specifically, we'll talk about fantasy and science fiction with Black leads. And I believe mine are all own voices, so they're also Black authors. I can't speak for Hannah, but I'm guessing probably the same. I feel like we're finally seeing so many of these books emerge in the last couple of years. Um, Yeah, I think all of mine are own voices as well. So definitely excited. Yeah. So uh, disclosure, anybody who is listening will know that I don't read a whole lot of fantasy um, and science fiction. I do read, but probably not as much as I should. So I'm relying on publisher descriptions, but I've pulled a number of these books just from my own reading list and also from this incredible database that I will link to in the show notes called Melanin and YA. I think it just launched this year and it's this database for all things Black YA and publishing and writing. So tremendous resource to have at your hands if you are a reader of YA or a writer of YA or want to know more about the publishing industry more widely. So my first pick is Darling by Kate Ancrum, and it's a Peter Pan retelling set in Chicago with a black man character. It comes out June 22nd, so you'll, you know, have to wait for the future for this one. uh, (laughs) Did you like that? Did you like that? (laughs) But this book sounds awesome. Here's the, the blippity blip. On Wendy Darling's first night in Chicago, a boy called Peter appears at her window. He's dizzying, captivating, beautiful, so she agrees to join him for a night on the town. Wendy thinks that they're heading to a party, but instead they're soon running into the city's underground. She makes friends, a punk girl named Tinkerbell, and the lost boys Peter watches over. And she makes enemies, the terrifying Detective Hook, and maybe Peter himself, as his sinister secrets start to come to light. Can Wendy find the courage to survive this night and make sure everyone else does too? That sounds awesome. That is Darling by Kate Ancrum. Yeah, it's funny because I super believe in this topic. And at the same time, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm sure I have tons of books like this. And I didn't realize for someone who is not super excited about Black History Month, how many books I've been you know, downloading and TBRing lately that are about Black history that I think I, I needed and need. Um, and I'm super excited about them. But it definitely was strangely a harder task than I expected to think about this topic. But my first pick is one that I read like right before it came out. And it was, I think, the first book I remember like reading the galley of and immediately like before I went home, stopping at a bookstore (laughs) to find it in print. And that is The Summer Prince by Aliyah Don Johnson. So it takes place in future Brazil. So it's sort of a dystopia. You have a city that's like a vertical city. So the higher up literally you are, the you know higher you are in society. And every year there is a process by which there is a summer king chosen because this is a matriarchal society and this is sort of their like cursory, like, yeah, men are okay, is sort of the setup, which I love. 
So we have June, who is the stepdaughter of like one of these women in government. And she meets the boy who becomes that year's summer king. And the entire city, you know, loves him. He's really attractive and like very, you know, cheerful and all that. But she sees in him the artist that he is, like her, and they both become like guerrilla artists around the city making all of these like political statements. And it makes everybody mad, which is great. I like it when teenagers make adults mad for political reasons. It's awesome. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So... Yeah, people are really angry, so they're going all around town, and you get these beautiful descriptions of their art and future technology and gorgeous Brazil and just all of this neat tech. And I just love seeing, like, a brown girl and brown boy in charge of things, and it's just beautiful. So everyone should read The Summer Prince by Elia John Johnson. This is the second episode in a row where you've talked about art activism. And I just want you to know I'm keeping a literal list of books that have been mentioned so that we can bring this up on a future podcast topic because it's fascinating. Oh, snap. (laughs) I didn't even notice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not related to art activism is my next pick, which is A River of Royal Blood by Amanda Joy. The This is a duology and the sequel, A Queen of Gilded Horns, comes out March 16th. So... If you want to read these back to back, like start with A River Royal Blood now because your timing will be perfect. Here's the little blippity blip. 16-year-old Eva is a princess born with the magic of marrow and blood, a dark and terrible magic that hasn't been seen for generations in the vibrant but fractured country of Meyer. Its last known practitioner was Queen Reina, who toppled the native Chimer royalty and massacred thousands, including her own sister, eight generations ago, thus beginning the rival heir tradition. Living in Reina's long and dark shadow, Eva must now face her older sister, Isa, in a battle to the death if she hopes to ascend to the ivory throne. Because the queendom of Meyer, only the strongest, most ruthless leaders, rulers, survive. When Eva is attacked by an assassin just weeks before the battle with her sister, she discovers there is more to the attempt on her life than meets the eye, and it isn't just her sister who wants to see her dead. As tensions escalate, Eva is forced to turn to a fae instructor of mythic proportions and a mysterious handsome Chimer prince for help in growing her magic into something to fear. Because despite the love she has for her sister, Eva will have to choose Isa's death or her own. This is an enthralling debut set in a lush, North African-inspired fantasy world that subtly but powerfully challenges our notions of power, history, and identity. Also has this absolutely beautiful cover. And that is A River of Royal Blood by Amanda Joy, which is out now. The sequel, Queen of Gilded Horns, is out March 16th. That does have a beautiful cover. I agree. My next pick is one that I wanted to read immediately, but I held off when I learned it was a duology because that's (laughs) what I do. So now they're both out and I'm very excited. It's the War Girls series by Tochi Onyabuchi. So it started in 2019 and then the sequel came out in 2020. And it is a futuristic Nigeria. So I will also read the publisher blip for this. In a war-torn Nigeria, battles are fought using flying, deadly mechs, and soldiers are outfitted with bionic limbs and artificial organs meant to protect them from the harsh, radiation-heavy climate. Across the nation, as the years-long civil war wages on, survival becomes the only way of life. 
Two sisters, Onyi and Ifi, dream of more. Their lives have been marked by violence and political unrest. Still, they dream of peace, of hope, of a future together. And they're willing to fight an entire war to get there. So I don't like military stories all that often, but... A, I saw this cover and was like, oh, man, like strong black girl in a really cool outfit. <laughs> like, sounds great. <laughs> but I just, Tochen Yubuchi gets such good reviews. Mm-hmm. And I just love the idea of future not America because present America is so terrifying that <laughs> it's nice to to travel somewhere else. And um, you and I have both talked about our desire to see like more international and global YA. So I am super excited to kind of dive into future Nigeria with War Girls. My next pick is another one that's not out yet. I promise I'm going to talk about some that are out. But this one comes out <laughs> June 29th. And it's This Poison Heart by Kaylin Barron. And the premise of this sounds so fascinating. It is the first in a series. So if you need to wait, there's your heads up. But otherwise, like, mm, the sounds great. And the little blurb. From the publisher, Bresis has a gift. She can grow plants from tiny seeds to rich blooms with a single touch. When Bresis' aunt dies and wills her a dilapidated estate in rural New York, Bree and her parents decide to leave Brooklyn behind for the summer. Hopefully there, surrounded by plants and flowers, Bree will finally learn how to control her gift. But their new home is sinister in ways they could never have imagined. It comes with a specific set of instructions, an old school apothecary, and a walled garden filled with the deadliest botanicals in the world that can only be entered by those who share Bree's unique family lineage. When strangers begin to arrive on their doorstep asking for tinctures and elixirs, Bree learns she has a surprising talent for creating them. One of the visitors is Marie, a mysterious young woman who Bree befriends only to find that Marie is keeping a dark secret about the history of the estate and its surrounding community. There is more to Bree's sudden inheritance than she could have imagined, and she is determined to uncover it until a nefarious group comes after her in search of a rare and dangerous immortality elixir. Up against a centuries-old curse and the deadliest plant on earth, Bree must harness her gift to protect herself and her family. This gives me major vibes of that first Samantha Mabry book, Oh my goodness, I'm turning around to find the cover of Fierce and Subtle Poison in just this like apothecary elixir, like plant girl, mystery, fantasy vibes. So it sounds awesome. And that is This Poison Heart by Kaylin Barron. That does sound good. I assumed that was going to be a sequel to Cinderella is Dead, which means now I can read Cinderella is Dead because it's a standalone. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm super excited about that. And yes, oh, this sounds amazing. My next pick is also one that is on my TBR. It comes out in April, so not too far from when people will be listening to this. And it's The Cost of Knowing by Brittany Morris. So 16-year-old Alex Rufus is trying his best. He tries to be the best employee he can be at the ice cream shop, the best boyfriend he can be to his amazing girlfriend Talia, the best protector he can be over his little brother Isaiah. But as much as Alex tries, he often comes up short. It's hard for him to be present when every time he touches an object or person, Alex sees into the future. When he touches a scoop, he has a vision of him using it to scoop ice cream. When he touches his car, he sees it years from now, totaled and underwater. When he touches Talia, he sees them at the precipice of breaking up, and that terrifies him. Alex feels these visions are a curse, distracting him, making him anxious and unable to live an ordinary life. And when Alex touches a photo that gives him a vision of his brother's imminent death, 
everything changes. With Alex now in a race against time, death, and circumstances, he and Isaiah must grapple with their past, their future, and what it means to be a young black man in America in the present. This sounds so great. One of my favorite internet black holes and Wikipedia black holes is time travel paradoxes. Mm. I have so much fun with them. And this one just sounds like it's, you know, all ready for lots of paradoxes and also just, you know, hopefully non-paradoxes. But I love that whole, you know, like trying to fix the future by tweaking things in the present or tweaking things in the future, but then changing the past. And so I love that this... This sounds like it hits all of those buttons, but also has like a social consciousness and oh, it sounds great. So that is The Cost of Knowing by Brittany Morris. My next pick is Witches Steeped in Gold by Sienna Smart. And I'm absolutely here for more witch stories and specifically witch stories where the lead is a person of color. Uh, this is a debut and it's the first in a series. And I'm especially fascinated because the author is Jamaican British. So I'm excited to see how that plays out in the book. And here's their little, the little blurb from the publisher. Divided by their order, united by their vengeance. Iria has spent her life in a cell, but every day brings her closer to freedom and vengeance. Jasmine is the queen's daughter, but unlike her sister before her, she has no intention of dying to strengthen her mother's powers. Sworn enemies, these two witches enter a precarious alliance to take down a mutual threat, but power is intoxicating, revenge is a bloody pursuit, and nothing is certain, except the lengths they will go to win this game. This Jamaican-inspired fantasy debut about two enemy witches who must enter into a deadly alliance to take down a common enemy has the twisted cat and mouths of Killing Eve with the richly imagined fantasy world of Furyborn and Ember in the Ashes. And that is Witches Steeped in Gold by Sienna Smart. My next pick is one that came out a while ago, so people should be able to find it. <laughs> and it's The Shadow Speaker by Nydia Corafor. So... Most people, well, not most people because this is America, but people who like to read speculative fiction, Afrofuturism, science fiction know this author. And this was, I want to say her first YA. If not, it was her second. And it takes place in West Africa in 2070. So it is about a girl who witnesses her father's beheading. And so she decides to go on a journey across the Sahara to find the guy who killed her. And on the way, she, you know, discovers a lot about herself. So it has this speculative edge, not just because it takes place in the future, but also because she is something called a shadow speaker, which allows her to kind of see beyond, I guess you could say. But it is, yeah, it's this great quest, which if you love quest stories, I think it's a great choice. People tend to get this one confused with Who Fears Death, which is very adult. <laughs> um, so don't get them confused. But Who Fears Death is also also really great and um, is going to be a TV show. So highly recommend for older teens. But for younger ones, I would start with The Shadow Speaker. I just love Okorafor's work. She just has all of these cool ideas. And I love how she does speculative fiction, but not in like, you know how you sometimes have that like stilted voice and this like kind of strange purple prose to it and she doesn't like she sounds her books sound very now but they take place elsewhere and i love that feeling of like you feel like you belong in the world right away even though it's in the future so that is the shadow speaker 
Let's each hit one more before we wrap up the show. And my next and last pick is A Phoenix First Must Burn, edited by Patrice Caldwell. And this one's been out for a year or so, but it's an incredible anthology of black girl magic in the form of speculative fiction short stories. And it's got this incredible lineup of writers. And just a handful of the writers include Aliyah Don Johnson, Elizabeth Acevedo, Danielle Clayton, Ashley Woodfolk, Ibiza Boy, and we can go on and on. I think there's 16 authors in this one. And the publisher's blurb, evoking Beyonce's lemonade for a teen audience, these authors who are truly Octavia Butler's heirs have woven worlds to create stunning narrative that centers Black women and gender nonconforming individuals. A Phoenix First Must Burn will take you on a journey from folk tales retold to futuristic societies and everything in between. Filled with stories of love and betrayal, strength and resistance, this collection contains an array of complex and true-to-life characters who you cannot help but see yourself reflected. Witches and scientists, sisters and lovers, priestesses and rebels, the heroines of A Phoenix First Must Burn shine brightly. And that is A Phoenix First Must Burn, edited by Patrice Caldwell with an incredible all-star lineup of contributors. Nice. My last pick is going to be Pet by Akweke Emezi, who people might know their first book, Freshwater, which is fantastic. Again, older teens, I think it, it's totally a great choice. But this one takes place in a near future where we have a world that once had monsters, but now doesn't, um, or at least as far as children are taught. But we have a girl named Jam who all of a sudden meets a monster creature that comes out of one of her mom's paintings. I guess I'm talking about art today. Huh. Um, And um, that creature's name is Pet. And Pet is trying to hunt a monster. So um, Jam is kind of along for the ride. And again, this is another, I, I like near future stuff a lot, even more than like far, far, far future. So this one just sounds great with that sort of fantasy edge, but also sci-fi future. And the the question it asks um, on the, if you read the flap copy is, how do you save the world from monsters if no one will admit they exist? Which also just like makes me think of like gaslighting and mm. all of this other kind of psychological twistiness that can happen when we don't believe people. So that is Pet by Akweke and Messi. And that's our show. Hannah, do you want to take us out? Yeah, thank you all for tuning in this week. It's so funny that we say that. I don't know if Zoomers even know what tuning in (laughs) (laughs) references. (laughs) But thank you for listening this week. Um, Please leave feedback about the show on Apple Podcasts. It lets other people know how we're doing. And it helps other new listeners find us. Don't forget to visit bookriot.com for newsletters, more podcasts, and all things bookish, including our insiders program with even more podcasts and newsletters. <laughs> Thanks again to today's sponsors for helping make the show possible. And thank you to our amazing audio editor, Jen Zink. <laughs> She's, you guys don't even know how great she is. You don't even know. You don't even She's know. She's so good. <laughs> You can follow me, Sarah Hannah Gomez, on Twitter and Instagram as shgmclicious, as well as on Instagram as bookishgirlfit and Kelly. You can find me on Instagram as hey Kelly Jensen. We will see you all again in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Happy reading. <laughs> <laughs>